have a big lesson to cover tonight. This is going to be our unit for review. So the last nine weeks worth of curriculum lessons, um, Genesis chapters 10 through 24, we're going to be reviewing those tonight. Um, plus, if we get some time, I, I added I added a few things at the end that I thought would just be encouraging and beneficial that went well with what we've been studying. So we're going to get right after it tonight so that hopefully we can get through all this content. And I'll just apologize for the note takers. There's not a lot of room left on the sheet to take notes. Um, I, I tried to give as much room as I could, but there's just a, a lot in 14 chapters of Genesis. And so we're excited to get into it tonight and, and go through this review. Why don't we start by praying? I don't know if we've got our live stream up yet, but we'll just pray and then uh, we'll get started once we're done with that. Father, we just come to you again tonight, um, prepared for this study with expectant hearts, just um, as we review this material again, Lord, as we go to the Word and see um, what you've written about history, about the way uh, you've interacted with mankind and chosen, called people from the beginning until now. God, I thank you that it, it is just truth that we can take a hold of and, and we can store it in our hearts and know that this is the truth. We can have a confidence in this and go back to it for any question that would come um, about the past, any question that would come about uh, big questions like where we're from or, or how we got here or even like we're going to see tonight some things about um, race and, and uh, how people got around the world and things like that. Lord, we thank you that you give us answers um, to some of these questions. We thank you that you give us the truth that it all works um, together. It's all cohesive. It all uh, aligns in agreement. And so we thank you for that. And we just um, tonight we, we confess that we trust it, that we have faith in your word, that we believe your word. So we look to that tonight to be built up, to be equipped, to be encouraged. And I pray that as we study your word in Genesis and other areas of the Bible, I, I just pray that we would be encouraged and stirred up in our own faith as we hear the word. I pray that our faith would be built, uh, it would be strengthened, and Lord, we would be um, just encouraged in, in you and how you interact with man and how you have good plans that you have established over time and continue um, to work in the world today. You have a plan for this world today, and I thank you that we get to be a part of it. I pray that as we take time to, to show ourselves approved, to study in the Word, to be faithful, um, to store it in our hearts and to know it, God, I thank you that you are able to use that word um, as we go out and, and bear witness to you and just share the testimony of your faithfulness and your goodness in our own life and throughout history, God. I pray that we would be better lights and shine brighter the, the more time that we spend in your word and having that built up and stored up in our hearts. Lord, I thank you that it, it helps us to provide a defense for our belief that we can give a good testimony, a cohesive testimony uh, for our faith. And so we pray this and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Well, we want to welcome you tonight. I don't know if I said that before, but for anybody in person here, we welcome you to service. Anybody online, we're glad you're joining us there too. So tonight, Unit 4, Lesson 40, which is a review. And so I wrote up on our, our title screen, and we've only got a few maps and things like that that we're going to look at tonight, but um, tonight's lesson is going to be about how God has been at work um, as we looked through Genesis between the Tower of Babel, which is where we started this unit, and the nation of Israel being established, which is where Lesson 9 uh, kind of left us off after Isaac had, um, well, gotten his bride. And so... As I've just been encouraged by this unit, if I were going to sum it up in one statement, I would say have faith in God. Have faith in God. We see it all through Abraham's life with God, and um, we're going to see that re-emphasized re again tonight. And so a lesson focus for us. Um, this isn't in your notes. I didn't have room to put it in there, but I wrote this down. Having viewed uh, the time of history between the Tower of Babel and Isaac being established, as Abraham's only begotten son, we recognize biblical truths relating to race, to covenant, to judgment of sin, and faithful fulfillment of promises. And so I invite you tonight, open your Bible up. I, I don't have the scriptures out of Genesis in your notes, um, once again, to save some room in there. But if you'll open with me, we're going to be just kind of going through a few pages of Genesis tonight. So let's start um, actually in, in Genesis 10, verse 32 and 11. Um, that's going to be where we begin tonight. And so we're going to start by talking about the time after the tower. And so this is the, the 
period between when the Tower of Babel um, occurred, when, when the languages were confused, and then when we pick up with Abraham. And so we're going to spend a few minutes here talking about kind of what the world was like in that time, and then we're going to transition into talking about Abraham's life, and that's what our unit's been about, is kind of these two segments of time, the the world after the tower, and then Abraham's life as God begins interacting with um, this one man through whom he would bring um, his promise of, of a nation. And so let's look at Genesis 11, verse 8, to begin here, talking about the Tower of Babel. We're going to see some things as we read. <clears throat> so the Lord scattered abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Now, some of these, we're just going to give little segments to jog your memory about things that we've learned about in the past. But if you remember the Tower of Babel, these were all the descendants of Noah. They had all stopped from spreading out like they had been told to do after the flood. They all stopped here at Babel, and they began building this great tower. Um, and, and it was really a monument of, of worship to false gods. It was a prideful thing on their part, and it was a disobedient thing because they were ignoring God's command to go out. And so they stopped here, and then we see God come in and mercifully intervene with the the disobedience and pridefulness of man it says he scattered them abroad all over the face of the earth we know that part of this and we'll see it here in a second was that he um, confused their languages Um, but what i want to start by talking about is the nomadic lifestyle of the people in this time this is something that interacts with archaeology because as as people dig literally dig into the earth to find out uh, information about the past um, many have speculated that there were uh, uncivilized people throughout time you know they would call them uh, neanderthals or they would call them just uncivilized tribal um, just early early progressions in in mankind Um, but what we gather from studying Genesis is that because these people were all in a central location and then had to disperse from there all over the world. I mean, imagine like even, and I don't think Babel, that city, it was it was bigger than Jefferson, I'm sure, but not like miles and miles and miles and miles. Imagine trying to get from Jefferson, Iowa to every other part of the world, not having planes, trains, automobiles, or any of that kind of stuff. I mean, these people had to travel far and, and slowly, and so they would have had a nomadic lifestyle, living in tents, um, not creating big ma- machinery or mechanical things, probably not setting up long-term structures. It could look to some like an uncivilized type of civilization, but really what we could see is that it's a transitional. So it's not about an uncivilized, but it's rather transitional. I want to pull up a map of, of people spreading out, and I don't know how well you'll be able to see this from your seats uh, but this is just uh, uh, something we looked at previously. It's a quick map, quick map of where all of the descendants of Noah may have um, ended up. Some of this is from archaeology. Some of this is from study, from things we see in the Word. We talked about this in a previous lesson. But you can see even just in this Mediterranean region, I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of miles of travel, years and years of travel. And so... Um, the people of that time would have lived kind of this nomadic lifestyle. And that's important to know because when people dig up evidence, they would want to make claims that would contradict the Bible by saying people um, you know, were evolving. But that's not the case. We would see it as people were transitioning into these scattered areas of the world. So that's just one of the things we, we caught on early um, in this unit. Uh, the next thing we want to look at, of course, part of that scattering was the languages being confused. Um, if we go back just one Um, Just one verse to Genesis 11, verse 7. Um, It says, Come, let us go down there, confuse their language, that they may not understand uh, each other's speech. And so one of the big questions people could ask is, you know, how, how do we have all of these different people groups around the world if we all come from one? And why are there so many languages if we all come from the same person, you know, if the Bible's true, then why would there be all these languages? And why would people be spread out so far around the globe? Well, the Tower of Babel is, is a key, key point to understanding this. Um, it's estimated that today there are 6,900 languages spoken around the world. Um, of all of these variations of languages, they can all be traced back to one of about 100 root languages. Um, and, and so we can just imagine here with 
all these people spreading out, all of these descendants of Noah a couple generations down the line. Um, it, it totally makes sense that if he was going to disperse all these different people group that there could end up with um, about a hundred root languages. And so we just see uh, the Tower of Babel incident lining up with what we have discovered over time about history, about the way people have spread around the globe. Um, it, it all is cohesive and makes sense together. Another reason that it's important to know this and it's important to study this, and we're going to go to Acts 17, verse 26. You can turn in, the, in your Bible or we've got it on the scripture sheet tonight. One of the other reasons this is important is because here in Genesis, we find uh, backing for the, the belief and the understanding that there are not different races of mankind. This is why understanding the Tower of Babel, the, the scattering across the earth, the confusion of languages. The reason it's so important to understand this is because there are people and there have been times in history where folks have wanted to make um, the claim that there are different races within mankind, that there are superior or inferior races, that there are some that um, are, are different in some way, that have more of one capability or less of another than other races. And um, the fact that we see in the Word is there are not multiple races. There is one race, the human race, mankind. God didn't create five different kinds of people, five different kinds of man. There weren't five Adams. There was only one. There weren't five Noahs. There, were only one, there was only one. And so every, every living person has come um, from the, the same people. And so there are not different kinds of races. If we go to Acts 17, 26, it says, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. And so we see this emphasized again in the New Testament as Paul is preaching to the Greeks. Um, he emphasizes this point. We see it here in Genesis. There is one race. And so it's, under, it's important to understand how man spread all around the world, how language was different all around the world, how cultures could have changed all around the world depending on where they went, uh, what they were interacting with, what, what uh, geographical challenges or um, other kinds of challenges they may have faced. All of these things would factor into differences. But none of this would point us to the belief that there are more than one race. And so that's important to know. I believe Christians should be the biggest advocates for one race and equality across all different kinds of people groups, all different cultures. Um, you know, that's not to say that everything every culture believes is equally right or equally moral. It's all not. Every, I would say every culture um, of the world has problems, some different than others. But when it comes to people themselves, when it comes to the value of people, um, there, there is not a different valuation in terms of life. All human life is very valuable to God. And um, I'll give this uh, as, as a point too. There is not meant to be division in the body. You know, I said Christians, we ought to be the proponents for um, one race and, you know, all people are created equal. I mean, Christians ought to preach that and believe that more than, more than anybody in the world. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, 17, we actually just read this scripture on Sunday when we were taking communion, but it says, For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Now, this is obviously referencing Christian believers. There's not meant to be division. There's not meant to be partiality. There's not to, meant to be a, a structure or a hierarchy of some, or some people are more important or more valuable or more of this or that than other people. We're one body. There's not supposed to be a separation or a division. There's not supposed to be a higher or lower valuation. We're all um, equally valued by God. Uh, we can see in Psalm 127, um, verse 3, I think the other scripture I thought about using was Luke 12, verse 7, and that's the one that talks about how you know, he, va he values you so much more than, than all the sparrows. You know, he talks about how um, he, he knows where all of the sparrows are at and he cares for them. How much more does he care for you? And so we know that there is value. Of course, we know he values us. God values us because he sent his son. I wanted to bring out Psalm 127, verse 3. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Now, I'll just make it plain. Every human life is valuable. Every human life is valuable. I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care what kind of nose you have. I don't care if, if there's something wrong with you. I don't care if you're con just conceived or if you're 120 years old. Every human life has value. Every human life is a heritage from the Lord. Every human life is a, a reward, the fruit of the womb. And so we know from the word that all people are valuable. All people um, are, are important and loved by God. And so people are valuable. Um, and, 
And one of the things we can take away from this too is that the value people have does not come from man and how we would place value, but it comes from God. The fact that we, we can read in Psalm 127, verse 3, and it talks about how children are a heritage, the fruit of the womb is a reward. That's not because a man or, or a woman decided that that's how it was. It's because God said it was. God defines what is valuable. God is the one who gives inherent value to mankind. And so a person does not have the authority to take that away or to give it. Amen? Only God has the the authority to give value. As the creator, he is the only one that can give um, value to a created being. And so, um, you know, man does not get to determine what's valuable. God makes it clear that life's valuable. No bias or moral shortfall changes the truth. Amen. No bias or moral shortfall of an individual changes the truth. And even, I'll say this, nothing that's been done in God's name that God would not have done does not change the truth. What do I mean by that? Just because somebody did something that was a horrendous moral action and they did it in the name of God does not mean that God advocated for it or condoned it. doesn't make it right. And it doesn't change the truth that God values every human life. Amen. We in agreement with that tonight? You know, it's in your notes, and I don't want to spend much more time here because we have a lot more to get through tonight. But um, another thing we talked about in in the past lesson was melanin. I think I said that right. Melanin, um, which is is a cluster of pigments. It's a grouping of pigments that give different tones in skin. You want to know why people have different skin color? It's it's because of genetics. It's not because you're part of a different race. It's because you know if we if we compared you to a page of poetry in God's poetry book, you're a different page, you're another line. And it's better because there's more than one line. It'd be terrible if everybody looked like me. Amen? <laughs> It'd be terrible. So, so it's a good thing that God's got creativity and diversity, and He is a, he is a wonderfully creative God. And so it doesn't mean that we're different people, more or less inferior or more or less inferior. I don't know how that should go, but, but uh, every person's valued by God. The way we look on the outside does not assign value. It is value that is inherent because God said um, that, that we are valued. And so that's kind of how I want to wrap up that part of the race. Let's go on to Job. We're just going to spend a couple minutes here um, you know, to encapsulate what we talked about a few weeks ago with Job. Really, I think it came down to this question, why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen? And um, we went over in that lesson really three reasons why bad things happen. We talked about how all of Job's friends wanted to tell him that he was being punished by God as a result of his sin, which wasn't the case. That was shown out as we studied the lesson. It wasn't that God was punishing Job because he was doing something wrong. Job was, was considered a good man at the time. And um, he continued to have faith um, in God. He continued to put hope in God. And in the end, he was blessed. In the end, um, his, his steadfastness was good. We, we, we talked about a variety of things with him. But to answer this question, why do bad things happen? We pretty much brought it down to three basic reasons. The world, the first one, the world is fallen from its very good created state. We talked a lot about this in our first couple of units. The world was very good before the fall of man um, in the Garden of Eden. So before that, I mean, it was... It was awesome. It was perfect. It was very good that God had created the world to be. We look at Romans 5, verse 12. It it speaks to this topic. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So sin entered the world when one man sinned. Um, The result of that, it says, and death through sin. And so death, things that are, are, well, Dying, The bad parts of the world are not a result of God wanting it to be that way. It is a result of the fall of man and sin coming into the world. Sin brought death into the world. And so when the world fell, it got worse. Sin, death made it worse. And so um, one of the reasons bad things happen, we discussed in, in that lesson on Job, is that the world isn't perfect anymore. The world is no longer the very good, perfect creation that God had intended it to be. And so that's one of the reasons why bad things happen. Um, the next one, and this is really what Job um, was dealing with primarily in his life, is that the enemy is a thief, a destroyer, and a killer. And where the enemy is not conquered, his carnage is present. Where the enemy is not conquered, his carnage is present. 1 Peter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, this is that scripture in 1 Peter is written to the church. It's written to believers. It's written to people who have a covenant and a promise. It's written to people who are 
after Christ has come and overcome the enemy. And so our enemy, the, the devil, he has been conquered. And so his carnage doesn't have to be present in our life. That's one of the things I took away from um, the 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 history with Job is I'm so thankful to be in the new covenant. And I'm so thankful that I have the blessing of God's involvement in my life, that, that the devil doesn't have access to just come and do what he wants. It says in first Peter five, he walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That doesn't mean he gets a free license to devour anybody he wants. It only means he can devour the people that haven't overcome. It only means he can devour the people that haven't conquered. If we get to it today, you're going to find out you're a conqueror. You're an overcomer in Christ. And so the devil does not have permission to come and bring carnage into your life. But it is a reason that bad things happen in some people's lives. People who don't know how to stand on the word to, like it says in 1 Peter, be sober, be vigilant and stand against the enemy, well, they may have some carnage of the enemy in their life, even though Jesus came so that they wouldn't have to have that carnage in their life. This is one of the reasons people have bad things happen is because there's an enemy out there. Enemies usually don't bring good things with them. Amen? He's a stealer, a killer, and a, and a destroyer. And where he is allowed to be present, there will be carnage present with him. This is one of the reasons bad things happen. The third reason we talked about in that lesson is that people have the decision to walk in a way of life or a way of destruction. Matthew 7, verse 13, Jesus taught this. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for, the wide, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Many, many choose to go in by the way of destruction, which is wide and broad, and many go down that way. It's a terrible thing. It's a sad thing. But we know that the way we walk is going to affect where we end up. Isn't that true? I mean, if, if I'm leaving the church parking lot and I go left and then I get to Highway 4 and I take it south, I'm going to end up at my house. But if I go out of the parking lot and I take a ride and I just keep driving in the road, I'm going to end up like in the river or somewhere that I don't belong we got to stay on the path that leads us where we want to go. Do I want to get to life? Well, then I better take the path that leads to life. And so one of the reasons bad things happen is because people walk the way of destruction. And the, the destination of the path doesn't change just because I don't want it to be that way. Just, oh, I don't want that to happen, but I don't want to change the path I'm walking. Well, you have to choose. You're either going to change your path or you're going to... You're going to end up where it takes you. And so one of the reasons bad things happen is people make a decision to walk the way of destruction. They walk that broad, wide path that leads to destruction. But praise God, Jesus came to be our way. He came to be a better way. He came to be a way that leads to life. And so I said this, what a blessing it is to be in covenant with God. Job, to me, reading the book of Job, some people would, would not agree with this, but I'll tell you, for me, reading Job is like the picture. For me, it is the, the picture of a difference between living in the blessing of God and His involvement in my life compared to the torment of being without God and totally at the mercy of the enemy. Right. To me, that's what... Job is a picture of heaven and hell, to me. I mean, I read the book of Job, that's what hell's going to be like, is... I do not have God interacting in my life right now. I am just here with the devil. And some, well, we talked about it when we did that lesson, and I think I got kind of fired up because there are people that think, oh, hell's going to be a great time. No, it's not. If you want to see everyone in your life killed for eternity, if you want to see, you know, feel boils and fire and the worm that doesn't die and all of these like awful things, you want to feel stolen from and empty all the time, unfulfilled and, and like with torment just going on for eternity. That's hell. That's, that's what the devil's going to do for you. So, so to me, it's a picture of how good God is and how evil the enemy is. Yeah. Amen? And so these are, I mean, we get some great lessons from 14 chapters of Genesis, don't we? We see some really, really applicable things for our life today. I mean, these are things I could point somebody back to this and say, and I know Job is a different book, but it would have happened in the timeline of Genesis in this, this point in the world. I mean, we could take somebody to the book of Job and we explain to them, hey, this is what the devil does. And so you want to walk with him. This is what you might not see it right now, but this is where it ends. This is what destruction looks like. It's not just, oh, you know, I might get caught. I might have to do this. I might have to. It's it's like real death. It's spiritual death. It's torment. And so praise God, we have the blessing of, of covenant. We have the blessing of God's promise in our life. We have the blessing of God being involved with us. And so that kind of wraps up our period of time between the tower and Abraham. And so um, now when we pick up in the Word, we're going to go to chapter 11. I think we're already there. 
Um, Genesis chapter 11, the end of this chapter gets into Abraham, or Abram at this point, his father's descendants, his house, um, his genealogy, what was going on with them. And so I'm just going to give you a brief rundown of kind of the early part of Abraham's life, and then we'll get a little bit deeper as we get into some of the later elements. Um, so Abraham, Abram's life, where it really picks up with us, we get the genealogy of his father, but then in chapter 12, like he had been mentioned a couple times before, but in chapter 12, really our pickup with Abram is God calling him. And you know, that's so fitting that, that where we start with Abram, this man who would be the father of, of the people in New Covenant, the, the you know, man who had faith and, and was the one who a great, gener- a great nation would come uh, from his lineage. It's awesome that we pick up with him when he's getting the call because I don't know what happened in the first many years of his life. We know this, um, and we, we get this from um, chapter 11. His father moved them from Ur of the Chaldeans to a place called Haran, and we think Haran is named after Abraham's brother who died, who had had a son named Lot, and he factors in later on. So Lot's his nephew. Um, they moved from Ur of the Chaldeans, which I'm not going to have it exact for you, but we, we would say that would probably be somewhere over in here, kind of on the eastern part of this desert, and then this is all where the rivers are at. That's like Fertile Crescent. That's good, livable land. You can live there. And so we believe that Ur would have been somewhere down in, in this area, which would be modern-day uh, Iraq, I think. And then Haran would have been up here around this uh, Asher area. And so there was this move um, when, when he was still in his father's home. So they go there. Terah, Abram's father, dies in Haran. And then shortly after that, when we pick up in chapter 12, Abram is called by God, um, well, to, to go and live out a, a life of promise. We're going to talk a little bit about that. So to break this down, chapter 11, uh, they move. His family moves from Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran. Um, in chapter 12, um, he's, Abram is called away from Haran, and he goes to the land of Canaan. And when you can find that in there, that um, in, in verse... Verse 5 and 6, God tells him um, to go to the land of Canaan, or that's where he starts going towards this land of Canaan. Um, Also in chapter 12, Abram and Sarai, they go to Egypt during a time of famine in Canaan. Um, So there wasn't food. They went down to Egypt. That's when um, Abram lies for the first time about Sarai being his sister so that he doesn't get killed. That was kind of one of those one of those times where we see the imperfection of Abram as a man. And I think it's good that we get to see that because when we read these Old Testament stories, sometimes I just think, man, these guys were like perfect. I wish, wish I could be like that. But, you know, they really weren't perfect. And, and they, had, they had times where they doubted uh, God and his faithfulness. They had, they had issues with them too. So they were down in Egypt. Um, then in chapter 13, Abram returns to Canaan with his possessions and his nephew Lot, who was with him. And uh, because they had increased so much, because God was blessing Abram through this time, um, there was not enough room in the area that they were sharing for both of them. So they decided to split up. Um, Lot takes a survey. He sees that this this lower valley by the Dead Sea was fruitful. It it said in the word that it was like the Garden of Eden. So he decided he was going to take that section and then Abram could get the other part. Um, and so that's kind of where we'll, we'll pick up and we'll start going deeper um, on the next part. That's a synopsis of his early life. Um, and, and all of these travels, like I mentioned a minute ago, they all come after God calls Abram. And so the call on Abram's life was really the moment that, that things changed, that he got out of his father's house, that he started moving toward the promise. Like we were talking about the way we walk a minute ago. This is when Abram got on a new way. He started living a new way. He started living out um, a, a new walk. I want to read um, Genesis 12, verse 1 and 2, because this is, this is what God said to Abram. I'm going to read through verse 3, actually. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curse, curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the word that Abram gets. And with that word and belief in God, he goes. He, he answers the call that God puts on his life. Um, and, and he starts pursuing 
and, and walking out this path that God's put before him. He takes this step to go to a land that God will show him. He ends up in Canaan and then uh, many more things that we're going to talk about happen. But he starts following God's plan. He does what God asks him to do. He leaves the land and family he knew. And um, in doing that, God had promised him an inheritance much better than what he was leaving. And I love that point because for you and I, that's the truth too. You know, we've been called to leave something of the past for something much greater. Isn't that right? You know what God has intended for you in new life in Christ, living in light, living in the blessing and inheritance. That is better than living in what I had before. There might be times, and I don't know, I mean, this is speculative, but it's possible when Abram was making the journey and he was hauling his tents and dealing with his animals and he didn't have a friend around him, he didn't know where he was at, I mean, that probably would have been stressful. I know, I know no guy thinks he needs directions, but Abram could have used some directions and I think he got them from God while he's traveling. I'm sure there would have been moments of stress. And I think um, during that time, there may have been moments where he thought, man, it would just be easier if I was living like I used to. It would be so much easier if I was back in Haran, back with the family, back where I know. But he had faith that what God had in store for him in the promised land was better um, than what he knew in the past. And so we have a promise of life much better than what we had before we responded to the call. This is something we see through the New Testament too. I don't think these are on your sheet, but I wrote down a few references. Uh, Matthew 9, 9, Mark 1, uh, 16 through 20, and Matthew 4, 19 through 22. I'll say those again for you. Matthew 9, 9, that's the section in Scripture where Jesus comes upon Matthew, the tax collector, and he calls him. He says, come follow me. And Matthew immediately picks up and leaves the life he knew to go and pursue this life of following Jesus as a disciple. Mark 1, 16 through 20. Mark 1, 16 through 20. This is where Jesus calls James and John to come and follow him. He says, I'll make you fishers of men. And they immediately respond. They, they get up out of the boat, leaving the, the past life behind to go and pursue um, what Jesus had in store for them in this new life. Um, and then Matthew 4, 19 through 22. Matthew 4, 19 through 22. This is when Jesus calls Simon Peter and his brother Andrew to come and follow him. All of these times, there is a call and there is a response. There is a call and there is an answer. There is a call to leave the life you have right now and come follow me. Just like you and I. We have been called away from what we had before to come and follow Jesus been called away from some things that we used to used to maybe pursue or used to give priority used to give the place of prominence in our life we've been called to follow Jesus first and foremost and and doing that is going to lead us down the path of life because that is that is his way is the way of life amen and so just to recap the first promise God makes to to Abram is that he will make him a great nation, he'll bless him, make his name great, cause him to bless others, and he'll advocate for him. That's what he's talking about when he says, I'll bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you. It means God's on my side. God's going to be with me. God's going to work on my behalf. So this is the first promise. And then if we went down to Genesis um, 12, verse 7, uh, when he finally gets to the land of Canaan, God promises the land to him. He says, uh, I'm going to give your descendants this land of Canaan where you've come to. So along the way, the promise got more specific. You know, uh, part of being a great nation would be a need for land. And so it wasn't totally a new promise, but it was, it was another, another uh, specific element of the promise that was already uh, given to Abram. And so in each of the promises and the corresponding acts of obedience, Abram had to trust God um, to do what he said he would do. Because as he left, you know, he was traveling to a land that he didn't have any claim to as far as man was concerned, but whether God was concerned, it was already his. And so it took Abram f having faith and trust in God to take this step forward um, and to, to pursue this promise, to walk the way he had set before him. So let's keep talking about Abram's life, what happened next. So him and Lot, they get to this area, they, they go through Canaan, they end up in Egypt, they get kicked out of Egypt, they're back in Canaan. Lot takes the land by the Dead Sea, Abram's in this other area. And um, then there is this war that we discussed pretty early on in this unit. It was these four kings of the east who had come really kind of from that area where um, Abram and his family had originally been from. They came from over here up this way and then down into Canaan over where, um, well, Dead Sea, 
It would have been down in this area. They came down here and they, they raided, they pillaged these cities, the five cities and the five kings of those cities. They took captive all their people. They took all their goods. And then they started making their getaway going back up to the north. And actually, I've got another map of this. This is a little closer. So they came from over here up, up and around, came down, ended up here by Sodom and Zor and Gomorrah and these five cities and five kings pillaged all this, took it back up, and they were making their getaway to head back home with all their goods. And uh, Abram hears about how his nephew Lot had been taken captive by these kings, and he pursues them. These other four kings, four, four cities, four nations of kings that they're now running away with all the stuff and with the people. And the amazing thing about it, too, is those four kings had already defeated the five kings that were united in these cities down in this Dead Sea area. So they had already defeated the armies of five kings, and they're making their getaway. And Abram goes after them with 318 men. They pursue them um, to Heboa, which is north of Damascus, up in this area around here. That's about a 200-mile trek. On, again, like on foot, they're pursuing them. They're running after them to catch them up. They catch them 200 miles later, and God delivers these kings into Abram's hand. He was victorious against them. He got the possessions back. He got the people back. Um, and then if we look in Genesis 14, 20 through 23, I'm just going to give a snapshot here of kind of the, the celebration or, or what happened next. Um, King Melchizedek comes out and Abram gives him, he was the high priest of that area in the time, he gives him an offering, uh, which is really an offering to God, though it was given to Melchizedek, it was, it was an offering to God who was his deliverer or who had delivered the enemy into his hands. And uh, Melchizedek says this, And blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so we recognize this. God had delivered his enemies into his hand. And Abram gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say... I have made Abram rich. And so even in this celebration and in victory, Abram wants to make sure that all credit goes to God, that God is the one who is glorified. Abram knew that it was God who had delivered his enemies into his hand. Um, and I believe this, Abram, we talk about the faith that he had. Um, I believe Abram had faith that God would deliver those enemies when he was pursuing them on this 200-mile trek with his thir uh, 318 men. And one of the reasons I, I believe that, and I see it as he said here, um, I will take nothing. He said in verse 22, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. I'll take nothing. I have raised my hand to the Lord. That tells me that it was already complete. It doesn't mean he got to the end and then they had this conversation. He said, God, I will not take these. He had already made a predetermined decision that when he won the battle, all the goods were going back to the people because he didn't want the men to get the glory for making him rich. It was going to be God who completed God's word in his life. He was going to have the patience and faith to let God do the work that, that God was going to do. And I believe this, and, and we see this even as we will get on and talk about um, impatience in waiting on God's promise. Waiting for God's way is always going to be better than trying to take it into our own hands or pursuing man's way of accomplishing the task. Amen? We know this. Abram, he, he ended up a, a man who was well off, who was blessed. We know that. And um, it was because he had faith in God to do that. And he allowed God um, to work that in his life rather than and trying to get it through men's means. Let's look at our next chapter. We in chapter 15 after this big battle and Lot's, you know, he's safe again and he's back in Sodom, which gosh, he should really have left that city, but he's back in Sodom and it's after this big battle. Um, God he he shows up to talk with Abram and this is where the blood covenant occurs. If we just I'm just going to read verse 1 and then verse 18 of chapter 15. It says, after these things, after this battle, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And then if we 
skip ahead to verse 18 it said on the same day and this is after the blood covenant we talked about this some weeks ago where abram brought these animals it was like a heifer and a goat and a lamb and a couple birds and he cut them in half and he laid them out in this walkway and then um, god put him to sleep and he had this vision of what was going on and god walked through these animals which was a sign of blood covenant Um, it was god making a covenant with himself god making a covenant with himself god telling God that I'm going to keep my word with Abram because that's more powerful than, than making this agreement with Abram. Um, part of the reason for that is God knew that Abram wouldn't be able to hold up his end of the covenant. If there was going to be, I'm going to do this and you'll do this, he knew that man wouldn't be able to keep um, the covenant until man had been redeemed. And so God made the covenant with himself. He did it by himself and for himself um, so that he could be in relationship with Abram and have this this nation for himself um, with Abram. And so God makes a covenant with himself. Um, Again, throughout this chapter 15, what we see reinforced is the promise of a son, um, descendants as the stars. We see a promise of land. We see um, a promise of possessions that would come to the nation of Israel after they had left Egypt or that they would leave Egypt after captivity with possessions. Um, We see, and this was 400 years before they were in Egypt or before they needed delivered from Egypt, God promised that they would be delivered from Egypt. And so, you know, I hadn't realized this before studying it in depth here, but the nation of Israel should have known they were going to get out of Egypt because they had the word that God had given to Abram when he made his covenant with them. And so um, he gave this promise all the way back here 430 years earlier that he would deliver the nation of Israel from Egypt. Um, He also promised Abram uh, that he would live to an old age, which he did. He lived to, what was it, like a, well, it was like 180 or something like that, that Abram lived to. I was actually thinking of of Sarah, who lived to 127. But Abram lived to a good old age, and um, God promises him peace throughout his life. As long as he's alive, he's going to have peace from this point on, which is what we see with him. He doesn't get, he doesn't have to go on a 200 mile battle trek again. And so um, they make, God makes this covenant with Abram. Um, The blood spilled from these animals uh, was symbolic and committing as the ink on a contract is today. And so the way we, and really even more so than that, more significant than the weight many people would give to a commitment made with ink and a signature today, God was making this commitment in blood that I will keep my word, I will keep this promise to you. The things I have told you will come to pass. And so God continues to reaffirm um, his word to Abram. I love that even in this, the, the, the word doesn't change. And it still doesn't today. God doesn't change his, his word. He doesn't change his promise. He keeps it the same. He might emphasize it in a new way. He got, might get more specific as he has um, as time goes on with Abram. But he never changes his word. And so this blood covenant's made. After the blood covenant is made and, and this interaction is over, we pick up in Genesis 16.2. And I'll just read verse 1 and 2. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And so um, this is impatience. Sarai gets this idea. She sends Abram and the servant into the, into the tent, and um, they come out with a son named Ishmael uh, nine months later and uh, this was a result of unbelief and impatience Um, and and we see that it it had originated with Sarai but Abram goes right along with it we talked about when we studied this lesson it was kind of like a repeat of the Garden of Eden there was uh, this opportunity to sin the man could have stood up and said no this is wrong we have the word of God we're going to go with what the word says but he doesn't do it he gets passive he just folds to the will of his his wife and um, the result is, is they act in impatience and in unbelief. Romans 8 verse 25 <clears throat> says, But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. If we hope for what we do not see, and this is in a chapter talking about faith. If we have faith and we're hoping for things that we don't see yet, we're going to wait for it eagerly with perseverance. Now we see with um, Abram and Sarah they weren't doing that. They weren't eagerly waiting with perseverance. I, I think they were um, irritably waiting with, uh, well, the opposite of perseverance, impatience. That's a good way to say it. They were irritably waiting with impatience for this son. And when they weren't seeing it happen, well, they just took matters into their own hands. 
And we highlighted when we did this lesson the difference between proactive planning and um, planning and working in agreement with God. I'm um, doing what I can do to line up with what God has told me, what, what his will is. Um, the opposite of that would be impatiently taking matters into my own hands, trying to come up with a plan that's outside of what God has told me that kind of deviates from what he's told us to do to try to make it happen on my own terms. Um, you know, just to get specific about it, and we're all adults in here, the difference in this is if, if they had been just being proactive in agreement with God's plan, they would have just been in the tent with each other every night. But that's not what they did. Sarai sent the servant in with them. That's way different, isn't it? One is cooperating with God's plan. The other is changing the plan to try to make it work because I don't believe it's going to happen the way he said it will happen. And so I wrote this down about it. Impatient actions cause complications in God's plan, which we see with Ishmael. It caused complications in God's plan. And I, I wrote this down with it. It's like pulling the seed out of soil rather than letting it grow. Pulling the seed out of soil rather than letting it grow. You know, um, Taylor and I, we started growing some plants out at my house this spring. We're hoping to plant them in a garden and have, you know, lots of delicious things to eat later this year. And one of the things I've noticed is I don't see the plants coming up yet. But I know that if I pull them out of the ground, then I'm never going to see them come up. If I'm impatient and I rip them out of the ground, I'm not going to see them produce and become fruitful the way that they're supposed to. But because I believe that they are in there and they're alive and they're working, I can wait patiently and eagerly. I've got an expectation that one day I'm going to walk to where they're at and I'm going to see a little sprout coming out of the ground. That's the difference between having this eager perseverance because I am in faith hoping for something that I don't see yet and impatiently waiting and trying to make it happen myself. Um, patience is, is an important aspect of faith. And so their impatient actions, this is, this is the good part. Um, they didn't disqualify Abram and Sarai from being used by God. So this, I'm just giving you the play-by-play -play progression. The next thing um, after Ishmael is conceived and born and all of that um, there is a a sign of covenant and a reaffirming of the promise and it seems like every time abram interacts with god there is a reaffirming of the word he he tells him again that this is this is who i am to you this is our relationship this is the promise um, that i give to you he reaffirms his promise every time and he gives a sign of the covenant this time and so um with this in interaction um which i think we find in verse seven or chapter 17 this is where this happens is in chapter 17 and we're going to read verse 19 here in a minute um, the covenant has already been established and god provides a sign of that covenant and i believe the reason he provides the sign is is to identify and to remind abraham and his family that they are set apart you know um, when when there is a, a sign or a reminder of the covenant that's been given you know it's like like communion which we did this last sunday well why do we do that because it reminds us about who we are and and what we have in christ it also identifies us those people that receive communion it's identifying that hey i'm i'm a child of god i'm in christ jesus i'm unified with him i receive his life i receive redemption through his blood like I'm part of this covenant. I'm part of this agreement. And so the sign of covenant that Abraham and his family would, would have here, um, it, was, it was a reminder and an identification that God has a, a unique and special set-apart relationship with Abraham and his family from the rest of the nations of the world. Here are the three signs that we see with this covenant. The first one is there is a name change. And this is part of reaffirming the promise that had already been given. He changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham. He changes it to mean a father to many. And with Sarah, um, her, her name changes to Sarah, which means princess. Those name changes were sig signifying um, who they were because of faith in God and what God could do in their life. Next thing we see is circumcision. And that was something that every descendant, physical descendant of Abraham um, would take. And that was once again a reminder and an identifier that I'm part of this group which is identified with God, not a, a person out in the world who is apart from this relationship with God. And then the last thing um, that we see, once again, as God reaffirms his promise and gives a sign of covenant, he says, you're going to have a son, tells him his name's going to be Isaac. In Genesis 17, um, verse 19, it says, then God said, no, Sarah, because 
Abraham was arguing with God about how um, Ishmael was going to be the child. And God says, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And so we get this reaffirmation and these signs of covenant. And then very shortly after that, I mean, would have been really, really quick after this, God appears again um, to give the news in proximity to Sarah so that she could hear it for herself. So in Genesis 17, 19, Sarah doesn't hear it. But then um, when he comes again in, uh, I think it's in chapter 18, um, this time she hears it. And so um, he tells the same thing. And, and then in that same meeting of chapter 18, this is where God shares with Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah's wickedness and how um, he has come to judge their sin. And so if we look at a couple of scriptures about this, Genesis 19, verse 24, <clears throat> It says, uh, then the Lord rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah uh, from the Lord out of the heavens. And so we know the end result of, of Sodom and Gomorrah's sin was this judgment. Um, some, one of the things that's important that we talked about when we studied Sodom and Gomorrah is that justice demands that atonement must be made for wickedness. What does that mean? It means when there is wickedness, there is a price that is carried with that. There, there has to be um, fulfillment or, or a price paid to, uh, you know, to fulfill the, the void or to fulfill um, the demand that's left by that sin. That's that atonement. And so justice, for someone to be right and just, there has to be payment for sin payment for wickedness and so uh, romans six twenty three is something that that speaks to this says for the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus our lord we know that there's a wage there is a payment owed with sin it's death um, when it comes to sodom and gomorrah there are there are lines of thought where people would say well you know how could how could god let that happen how could there be a, a punishment for for sin like that? How, how could these people um, be judged in that way or punished in that way? But what we have to know is it's not cruel for sin to be punished. It's just. It's not cruel. It's not wrong. It, it, it's not unfair. It is, in fact, the most, I mean, fair is kind of the wrong word. It's almost too light of a word to use, but it's like the most fair thing that could happen is that pun, there'd be punishment um, to pay for the sin. And so it's not cruel for sin to be punished. Um, the good news for us today is that we've got someone who bore our punishment for us, and his name's Jesus. First John four seventeen through nineteen says, "Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us." Love has been made perfect among us that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Why is that? Because as he is, so are we. How is he? He's righteous. He, he has risen from the dead. He, he is at the right hand of the Father, in right standing with God the Father. And so if we are as he is, we're righteous too. We're right too. And that's good news for us because it means we're not going to have to bear the punishment of sin. We're not going to have to pay that wage. Like it says in, um, in Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life, not uh, the wage of sin, which is death. So praise God that he bore our punishment for us. One of the other things with Sodom and Gomorrah is that there, it's notable there, there's evidence present today of uh, brimstone, falling on these wicked cities uh, there's a there's a archaeological dig site that's been titled numeria it's n-u-m-e-i-r-a and that excavation ex has exposed this this city which was covered when they when they excavated it they found that this city had been covered in 16 inches of ashy debris when it was destroyed and its arabic name has similarities to the hebrew name for gomorrah and so there's one instance where archaeology and excavation has come to find that there is a city that is full of ashy debris. And then the other thing is in that Dead Sea region, there are these deposits, like specific, I mean, almost like there's a, a boundary drawn where there is uh, high deposits of sulfur or calcium sulfate, 
which is is a limestone and sulfur mix. Now that area was made out of lines, limestone, and so when sulfur was introduced, it would have caused calcium sulfate. And so there's very specific locations with high deposits of this throughout that Dead Sea Valley. And that could indicate that sulfur, which is brimstone, would have fallen in these specific locations mixed with the limestone and caused this calcium sulfate. And I have a couple pictures from that area. This is like you know, this is one of those areas where if fire and this, this uh, sulfur brimstone's falling, it could, it could have caused a building made out of limestone to turn into this calcium sulfate and maintain a structure that, I mean, that looks to me, I know it looks like a bluff, but it doesn't take much for me to see that as a building. I don't know about you. And so it is amazing just to see physical evidence of things like this. And then this is that uh, calcium sulfate, which is a mix of sulfur and that limestone, like we mentioned a minute ago. And so all of this happens. Sodom and Gomorrah, we know how that story goes. Lot is delivered. That city was wicked. They, they were atrocious and evil and wicked people. And praise God, he was faithful, um, really for Abraham's behalf to bring Lot out. It really wasn't even that Lot was just such a great stand-up guy. I mean, he called the citizens of that city brothers. So he was in one way or another affiliated and identified with them. Um, because of his relationship with Abraham and Abraham's pleading and intercession with God, Lot was delivered too. And so it's, it's great news that God sent really laborers in the form of angels to deliver Lot. Just tell you, intercessory prayer works. Pray for the people that you care about who aren't walking the way of life right now because God is faithful and he's able. Amen. So after this, after Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham and Sarah, they journeyed south to Gerar, which I'll just throw the map up quick and point it out. That would be in this area right around here. So south of here where they had been at before. And so they, they make another trip and it's in Gerar in this place. This is where the promised son Isaac is born. He's identified as the sole inheritor of the promise of the blessing of the land that had been promised of this, um, you know, this generations to come, this, the, the descendants that would be numerous as the stars um, in Genesis 21, 1 and 2. It says, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, He's doing what he said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time which God had spoken to him. And um, uh, Isaac, he was named Isaac. And so Isaac being born by Sarah, through Sarah, is a fulfillment of promise that God had made to Abraham 25 years earlier. And then something else to note is, uh, and, and this is coming from our next encounter, which is Abraham being willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice um, on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, verse 16. Um, it says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Then he says, Blessing, um, I will bless you. God identifies that Isaac is his only son. And even though Ishmael had already been born, um, there's this recognition that Isaac um, was the only son in terms of lineage. There wasn't going to be this, you know, shared disbursement of the inheritance. There wasn't a shared um, disbursement of promise. And so anybody that would want to tell you that one of Abraham's other kids, because then he had other kids after um, Sarah had died and Isaac had grown up and married a wife. He had other kids later on in Genesis. Um, none of those other ones were the promised son. None of those other ones were um, the child that was considered to be the legacy, to be the one who generations would come through. Um, what that tells us is, is this. When we get to this next part where Abraham goes and is willing to sacrifice his son, there wasn't a plan B. There wasn't, he wasn't thinking, oh, Ishmael is the other option. If this one doesn't work out, I'll just fall, I'll, you know, I'll go find Hagar and Ishmael out in the desert and bring them back. And then, you know, we'll have Ishmael be the, the guy. There, that wasn't a consideration. He was totally in faith that God was going to have Isaac alive when they walked off the mountain. So if we went ahead into Genesis 22, Verse 2, it says, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Abraham does it. God delivers him. We know how this goes. Um, praise God. He is faithful to keep his promise, to keep Isaac alive. He provides for himself um, a sacrifice in, in the form of that ram. 
There are parallels between um, Isaac and Christ in a father sacrificing his son. Um, We see this. Isaac and Christ were both uh, identified as the son of promise. They were both identified by God as the only begotten son. They both carried the wood of their sacrifice. They were both offered as a sacrifice. And we believe both of them were offered willingly. They chose to be that sacrifice and get on the wood to be sacrificed. The father willingly made the sacrifice or offered the sacrifice. Um, In both cases, a lamb um, was was sacrificed. You know, Christ identified as the lamb and then um, a ram. And then a return from death where, where... Christ literally resurrected and rose again from death. Uh, Isaac got off of uh, the altar where he was um, to die. And so praise God, uh, we see the parallels, we see the foreshadowing of what Christ would come to do. Um, And then as we studied last week, we see Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah and the servant all relying on God, all putting faith in God to kind of bring this last piece into place to secure this lineage. Because until Isaac's got a wife, we don't have another descendant to, to come after the fact. And so um, God miraculously lines things up um, for Rebecca to come into Isaac's life and be his wife. Um, and, and praise God, he, he just has kept his word all the way along the way. He's made his plans, his promise come to be. Um, and all along Abraham's life, we see him putting faith in God. I've got some other notes um, in there. I think you have them too about uh, how all of this is part of a bigger plan of God, of of him establishing a great nation as an avenue um, to bring his plan of salvation. You know, as we studied Abraham, um, it was it was so crucial, so essential, because with Abraham being established, God had a, a group of people now that are set apart through whom he would work to bring his son, who's identified as the seed, who would crush the head of the surf, serpent, make us overcomers. We have some scriptures um, from Galatians 3 that just talk about salvation, uh, being in faith, how we're, we're justified, we're blessed, um, we have an inheritance, we have a promise, we have a blessing in Christ. All of these things are in Christ. And uh, what, what we didn't get time to do tonight, which I'm, I'm kind of sad about because I was excited about it, but you've got the information so you can take this with you and study it out for yourself if you'd like. Um, we have seen how God kept his promises to Abraham. Uh, this gets me asking the question, what are God's promises for us? I want to give you just a couple pieces um, and then we'll close with a quick prayer here. Um, God's promises for us are not always expressly stated as a promise. If you tried to find God's promises in the Bible, you can't just like go to an index and search promises because you're not going to find every time where God says, you know, this is what is for you. This is what I am doing for you. This is what is uh, a promise to you. Um, They're not always expressly stated as promise. Many times God just says what will be. And, um, you know, I wrote this down. God just saying this is what will happen, that's more solid than a person giving me a promise. You know that? All God has to do is say this is how it is, and I believe that that's how it's going to be in my life. I've got faith in his word. I don't need him to say, I promise, I give you an oath, I commit to you. I mean, I don't need all that. Just tell me what it is, God, and I'm going to believe you at your word because I believe you tell me the truth. I believe you're faithful to your word. And so these promises are for those who are in the new covenant. What does that mean? The promises of God, and this is what Galatians 3 talks about, all these promises, all this inheritance, all this blessing that he has for people in the new covenant is really through Christ. And so the only way you get the promise is to be in Christ, to be identified with Christ, to be relying on Christ, to uh, allow his life to be working in you, to be walking his way. This is, this is how you receive the promises of God in your life is to be identified with Christ, to be in Christ. And so on the back of your scripture sheet, what you'll find is something I titled the in Christ life. Um, these are all references that I took from a Kenneth Hagen book titled in him. And it's a great book. It goes through um, so many of the promises that God has given to the people who are in Christ, who have received Jesus as their Lord, who are walking in the way of life that he came to make for us. And so um, in that you'll find just a number of things that we are and we have and we live um, with in Christ. And so you'll see those references, you'll see the the headings, and I just pray that those will bless you. encourage you if, you, if you haven't done a, a study of that before, just use this as a, a jumping off point and study out what God says about us 
You know, we've spent weeks now looking at what God's promise to Abraham was, and that's good because it gives me some ground to see how he works with the person that he's made a promise to. But I got to know what he's promised me if I'm going to be like Abraham and I'm going to live in faith with it. Right. Amen. You know, we, I throw some of them out sometimes, but uh, it's never going to be as comprehensive as you go into the Word and you letting the Holy Spirit bring revelation and truth to you about it. It's going to bless you. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the Word written in your heart as you study it out. I believe um, the Spirit will remind you of it when you need the promise. You know, you could be facing... I'll just pick one off of here. Deliverance. He has de- Colossians 1.13. He's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of His Son of love. Hey, I'm feeling like I'm in a dark place today. Hey, wait a minute. I know what the word says. I've been delivered from the power of darkness. So this dark feeling I've got has to get out of my life in Jesus name because I'm in Christ. And if I'm in him, I'm out of the darkness into the glorious light. Amen. And so I believe you'll be blessed by studying out the in Christ life. Let's pray and close this study tonight. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for your promise that you gave to Abraham to to bring and establish this nation through whom your seed would come, through whom the plan of salvation would come. And Lord, I thank you that because we've received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, because we are in him, we're identified with him, we're reliant and dependent on him. God, I thank you that that we're with him. And so the promises that are that are for him are for us, too. When you say in the word that um, in Christ is this, we believe that that's that's talking about us. That's a promise for us. When you talk about being delivered or you talk about reigning in life or we talk about being overcomers or blessed or provided for whatever the, the promise we're discussing may be, Lord, we thank you that just like we've seen you be faithful in Abraham's life to fulfill the promise time and time and time again, even through through moments where he was struggling or doubting and Lord through times where he had heard your word and it had been stirred up and built up in him where where he was able to go and do something unthinkable because he knew you were faithful to come through God I thank you that as we study your word as we put your word into our heart we would be built up and stirred up in faith and know that you are true know that you are faithful know that you are capable and that we would just trust in you to come through in your promises that what you've promised we would not only ask but we would expect and we would rely on and we would look to you and your word and your promise through steps of life. Just like how Abraham, he took steps based on the word that you had given him. God, I pray that as we consider your word to us, consider your promises to us, I thank you that that too will be a blessing and help us take right steps in, in this life. As we seek your guidance, I thank you that the word and your spirit will guide us, that your word and your spirit will strengthen us, that your word and your spirit will help us to live this abundant life that you've given as a gift of grace. Lord, we receive it in Jesus' name, and we love you. Amen. 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 Well, thank you for coming out tonight. I pray that you've been blessed. Hope you get some time to study these out, and um, I believe that'll be a blessing too. So have a wonderful evening.